Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Theory of Enchantment podcast. On this episode, we will be speaking with Megan Dahm, who's the author of five books, including the brand new book, The Problem with Everything, My Journey Through the New Culture Wars. In 2019, Megan became a bi-weekly columnist for Medium. From 2005 to 2016, she was an op-ed columnist for the Los Angeles Times, and her work has been included in the best American essays, and she has written for numerous magazines, including The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, The New York Times Book Review, and Vogue Magazine. In this interview, we talked about her latest book, her experience growing up, in New York in the 70s, a lot of the things that she encountered that are very different from some of those same trends that are existing now, how social media affects the generations differently, and one of my favorite topics, how the film Revolutionary Road reveals the truth about men and women in America. This is a great interview, and I hope you'll, of course, share and retweet and spread to your friends and family. Tell them about the Theory of Enchantment podcast and let them know that we have incredible guests on on a regular basis. And now, without further ado, the Theory of Enchantment podcast featuring Megan Dom. I hope you enjoy. Hello, everyone. We are here with Megan Dom for the Theory of Enchantment podcast. Funny story, Megan does not know how to pronounce her last name, so we don't actually know if it is Dom, in fact, and not something else. But at any rate, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Chloe. <laughs> it's not that I don't know how to pronounce it, it's that I can't decide how to pronounce it. Has this been like a lifelong... Yes. Wow. I mean, if you care, I can go I, into I mean, it. But, it's funny, so... Uh, so I grew up saying Dom, and... I was constantly correcting people because they would default to Dom yeah. for whatever reason, even though it's like Baum, it's like down, it's like oh, Baum right. with the deep anyway, but they would say Dom and I would correct them and say down. And it's at a certain point I realized that my cousins and all my relatives who I really didn't know very well for various reasons, all, all said Dom and that my father in fact had grown up saying Dom. <laughs> and then at some point early in my parents' marriage, they had run into some German professor and he was like, well, it's dome, don't you know? As you know, it would be in Germany. Right. And my parents had all these sort of um, aspirations to separate themselves from their families and they had all these class anxieties because my father had grown up very poor and my, you know, my mother had all these, you know, really wanted to separate herself from, from where they had come from. So they started saying dome. Uh. And I didn't realize that this was their doing. This was like completely, uh, you know, generational it would had always been dom so what happened is over the years i just stopped correcting people <laughs> when they said dom and then i don't know i guess like maybe in the last five years or so i just started saying dom because it's easier but it now but it's actually not easier because people used to know me as dom anyway it's compl complete confusion and one of the great regrets of my life is that i did not change my name when i was just starting my writing career. What did you want to change it to? It never would, well, any number of things, but my <laughs> parents were such, I mean, you know, God rest their souls. They were great people in their ways, but they were such narcissists okay. that they would have been horrified if I had changed my name. Well, it sounds like they went through a great deal of struggle to like solidify the name crest, as it were. <laughs> yeah, but it's such it's such an undistinguished so if one you anyway. It, it would have sort of defeated the purpose of all that hard work. Right, but at the same time, I they they would have been offended, but then they also were like embarrassed by my writing. So I would have saved them a lot of grief. It was like <laughs> A, a textbook no-win situation why so. were they embarrassed by your writing they just were they they were really um they were not they were smart people but they were not readers they're from um they're musical my father was okay. a professional musician mm -hmm. um and so their whole sort of intellectual orientation was not literary it was musical so they thought they didn't really have any context for the sort of work i was doing so they thought i was just the most um the most like confessional like self exploiting okay. um rabble rouser like and it's like they just had no context whatsoever so like no n nothing i could say or show them would 
prove otherwise. I see. Anyway, so. So interesting. I feel like <laughs> all of this is actually relevant. Okay. To one of, at least one of the things we're going to talk about. All right, good. That was, otherwise, it was an <laughs> unforgivable tangent. Which is your latest book, The Problem with Everything, My Journey Through the New Culture Wars. Tell us about the book. What is the problem with everything? Mm. Well, the problem with everything relates to a couple of different ideas. The most obvious one being the way now so many things are deemed problematic so uh that's sort of one angle but ultimately the problem with everything in my mind is like that topic that we're always chewing on in our brains it's like we kind of walk around through life and thinking like what is the problem with everything like why am i so dissatisfied why do i not feel connected to the things most people seem to be connected to like what is it um and so what i talk about in the book among lots of other things, uh, was the way that when I was married, you know, my my now ex-husband and I, for all of our problems, we were really intellectual allies. Mm -hmm. And we spent most of our time talking about the problem with everything. It was like the thing that we had together. Um, And we were always just sort of looking at the world. We saw the world in a very similar way. So when when we split up um, quite amicably, uh, but nonetheless, I, I lost my my conversation partner, and so I didn't have somebody to talk about the problem with everything about. So I started like turning to um, people on YouTube, uh, mm-hmm. among other places, and and listening to them talk about the problem with everything. So it's now just become uh, a way of a, a sort of portal into looking at the culture in this moment and uh, talking about not only how we problematize everything, but but why it is that that we're so longing for um, a kind of connection that has been metabolized into acrimony and siloing. It's so interesting. So I'm curious, though, because in previous decades, when you and your ex-husband would discuss these things, was the nature of the problem different? Because if you were constantly talking about the problem with everything, how has the problem changed? How, how have the problems changed? I don't, well, I mean, the individual, the actual problems change. I mean, we used to talk about, um, I mean, gosh, we met in like 2006. So mm-hmm. whatever was going on then. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's like, I, I don't even remember. So um, like the Bush administration. Yeah. And then, yeah. Like, yeah. why is George W. Bush so stupid? Yeah. <laughs> why is he so, why is he the devil? I mean, can you believe this? Like, how, how many miles would you walk across glass barefoot to get George W. Bush back in yeah. the White House? I mean unbelievable uh yeah and we just you know we would talk about sort of why um why people we knew were so um kind of had knee-jerk reactions to things i mean we were both liberals but we were all we were um we were critical of groupthink. i think that's really what it was so the problem with everything was just the way that um a lot of the people around us just seemed to default to certain uh certain assumptions about the world and Mm -hmm about what was what was moral and what was a good person and what was the right way to see things. So so that's kind of what it was. So it seems like the nature of the problem hasn't changed then. No, I think the nature of the problem is really just um the way that that every individual has their own version of feeling like they're not getting with the program in some mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. And that's timeless. So to to what extent do you think that some of this is I guess, you know, some people say that perception is reality, but to what extent do you think that it is, in fact, thwarted, our sense of reality is thwarted by things like Twitter and stuff, which doesn't necessarily reflect, you know, majority perspectives or majority opinions on no, various topics. No, it doesn't, um, but it has outsized influence mm-hmm. is the problem. So, yeah, what is reality? I don't, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. This is what, what we used to talk about in sitting on the floor in the dorm room, stoned, right? I mean, this is like... <laughs> That's true. I mean... That's true. Uh, yeah. I, I guess, I mean, yeah, everything is, is relative. Uh, I, I just, you know, I really boil it down to people are lonely. Mm-hmm. And um, there's just kind of a baseline... I'm not even going to say alienation. That's true. But I okay. think that's been talked about a lot. To me, it's really loneliness. Okay. And social media has sort of given us the um, the illusion of connectivity. But um, it's obviously for all sorts of reasons that I wouldn't be the first to bring up. Uh, foster a real, real sense of isolation. Do you think that because of the, because of the uh, delusion or, you know, I think that's essentially what you're describing. The delusion of social media sort of makes the loneliness worse. 
Oh yeah, and also you know it incentivizes uh, the just the most reductive reactions to things. Mm-hmm. Like you know a lot of what I talk about in the book is nuance mm-hmm. and and complexity of thought. And I don't think it's ever been harder to actually sit with your own confusions and your own contradictions than than now. You know one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot and talking about a little bit is like you know when I before social media. You know, when I was in my 20s, for instance, in the 1990s, uh, I would sort through my ideas and kind of think about the world by talking with my friends, like right. in person. And, uh, you know, you'd come home from work and you'd either go out for drinks with your friends or pick up the phone and call somebody and yeah. talk to them for like a really long time. Yeah. And you weren't doing something else while you were talking to the phone. <laughs> the phone was attached to the wall. Right. You know, you couldn't walk around, you couldn't drive. You couldn't, you know, you were very unlikely to be like reading a magazine while talking on the phone. Uh, So, you know, we had this space to sort of sort through our thoughts and hear what other people thought and kind of make mistakes, Mm -hmm. say things that might potentially be really off or even offensive and have them land in a way that was not a big deal. Like someone would just say, oh, no, that's kind of messed up. Like, why would you say? So that is just a very organic uh, intellectual experience mm-hmm. and that has been totally lost in this moment because instead of getting together and talking we're having these things on social media and they are they are algorithmed right. way out of any kind of human uh, experience right in any way I'd be curious to see the the fallout I mean maybe we're already experiencing the fallout now but like a decades from now the fallout of social media and sort of like in general the effect of AI on our ability to communicate or not with uh, one another. I want to talk a little bit about um, more specific topics in the book. You talk about how misogyny was dealt with in the 90s versus how it is being dealt with today. Can you unpack that a little bit for our audience? Sure. So, you know, one of the things that I that I talk about a lot in the book is growing up as a woman as a girl in the 1970s and 1980s. So I was born in 1970. I grew up right alongside second wave feminism. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was three years old when Roe v. Wade was passed. And I remember in 1982, learning that the Equal Rights Amendment was not gonna be ratified and my mother being really sad about that and talking about that. you know, all all along, you know, during those decades, I never had a sense of myself as a as a girl of being anything but equal to boys. In mm-hmm. fact, the girls were doing better. Mm-hmm. It was better to be a girl. Um, the girls did better in school. Uh, it was there was a wider range of sort of personal expression. If you were a girl, like you could wear pants, you could wear a dress, mm-hmm. you could do sports, you could do you know drama like like there was you know there was just it was it just seemed like a better deal all the all around to be a girl and especially then like being a tomboy was cool like i say that you know it's no accident that the 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 two biggest child movie stars of the 1970s were jodie foster in the movies and christy mcnichol who Mm -hmm. you may not know who she is but she was a child actress on television and a teen actress and she had this like amazing like she had the great feathered back hair like which was just totally sought after and you know both of those uh actresses are now out lesbians Mm -hmm. i mean there was just something so like not girly girl about them and that was what you aspired to was uncool to be a girly girl and then you know that our generation grew up you know and that we were it was like the riot girl thing in the 90s and it was like the the grunge and the doc martens and your flannels and so we had this like great i think advantage of being able to uh be women in a way that was not like hyper feminized Mm -hmm. it was that was it was like cool and sexy to be like kind of androgynous or just kind of like not not a girly girl yeah and so um i know you you mentioned zoom i actually grew up watching zoom Zoom? yes okay but i think you're probably a lot younger than i am i I, I watched the 90s the new the 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 okay so i would be oh my gosh i would be (laughs) so curious to like sit down with you and show you like the early zoom videos like you'd probably be like this just looks like somebody's cable access channel like (laughs) um right so there was this kids show zoom that back in the 70s you know the kids all just like dressed the same like it was like you weren't like like you know it wasn't about being boys and girls it was about being kids yeah 
everyone watch the bad news bears yeah so uh you know in thinking you know in sorting all of this through uh i started to wonder if there was something particular about being a gen xer that that is making me and a lot of women my age not really relate to some of the conversations that are going on going on now so you know starting around 2014 or so there was a lot of conversation you know burbling up on social media about how women were living under the thumb of the patriarchy we started you know seeing all these memes like ban men and mm -hmm. i drink male tears and the notion of toxic masculinity started to get thrown around and yeah, it was ironic. You know, you could call it ironic misandry had been called that. Um, but I just thought it was really curious that that was happening at the very time that women, um, bless you, that women had never been doing better in like the history of civilization. Like yeah. they were, they, women were graduating from college at a higher rate. Um, they were just, they were doing, the, the wage gap was narrower than ever, not closed, it's never gonna be closed, but but narrower than ever. Men were just sort of not doing well, mm -hmm. suicide rates of boys, on and on and on. So I thought it was just like a strange paradox that this kind of rhetoric was, was um, sort of the default rhetoric of the conversation around women at the very time that women were doing better than ever. Mm -hmm. And what would you ascribe that to? I mean, I know you talk about this in the book, but based upon your experience of time, because I think that the generation that you're referring to, millennials, I'm a millennial, you know, we don't have the benefit of retrospect in that sense. <laughs> so. Right. Um, so, you know, when I started this project, uh, and I have to say that I started it uh, well before the Trump election. I mean, I started thinking about all of this stuff in 2015, and I officially started the book and or in 2016, assuming that Hillary Clinton was going to be the president. So it was very much just going to be narrowly focused on feminism. Um, and when I started it, I, I guess I would have answered that question by saying, you know, when things are great, it's, it's seductive to try to find things that are wrong. Like, you know, if things are pretty stable, the, your world is safe, um, everyone's relatively prosperous, mm -hmm. Uh, there, there is some kind of, um, you know, perhaps humans are wired to find some sort of crisis to mm -hmm. occupy themselves, and and that's what's going on. Uh, a couple years out, having spent several years thinking about this stuff, I guess I would say that that's part of it. But another part of it may be that uh, you guys, like your generation grew up with certain conditions um, that we didn't have to like we did not have to deal with ubiquitous online pornography we did not have to deal with with social media completely just dominating our entire social existences yeah. like we did not you know i think something like sexual consent for instance um the the contours of that are very different if you are somebody who has been exposed to online pornography your entire life sure. and, and are more apt to for instance get into a sexual situation with somebody you met on a dating app like an right. hour ago yeah. who you might not ever know and yeah. so i think that you know coming having sitting here now what i would say is that it's it's a little bit too easy for somebody who's like almost 50 to be saying like oh you guys just need to toughen up because we could do this because <laughs> we you know we had our issues but we certainly i think that we had the benefit of living in the sort of analog world yeah it sounds like it sounds like maybe maybe there isn't a crisis right maybe we are exaggerating the problem but there is in fact a problem and we need to be more level-headed in addressing the problem unpacking the problem um and you know moving forward so maybe it's sort of a split the difference between thinking there's no crisis whatsoever and thinking that everything's going to hell. <laughs> right, yeah, I think that's a that's a reasonable assumption, right? It's like we only have two lanes, right? right? We have like the express lane right. to to catastrophe and we have the slow lane where there's where there's nothing wrong. Yeah. Um I mean, you know, ultimately I I think the book what I what I do think what I am more worried about actually. I'm 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 less worried about what's going on with women, for instance, than what's going on in terms of public discourse generally okay. like ultimately so i started writing the book about women then trump got elected and it was pretty clear 
uh, fairly quickly that what the, the, the real crisis was the conversational chokehold mm-hmm. that the culture was in mm-hmm. and the way the left especially had declared such an emergency around Trumpism that they were effectively saying, well, we cannot have any sort of nuanced conversation or speak honestly about a certain set of issues because mm-hmm. doing so could cause harm to certain groups that Trump is already causing harm to. And yeah. so therefore we can't, uh, we need all hands on deck for this particular sort of narrative. And that uh, is is to me far more dangerous than any yeah. of these given identity issues. And would you say that issues. that sort of, so I was like, I don't how old was I when Bush, George W. Bush was elected? I don't remember. But would you say that that level of emergency type of response was not like the knee-jerk reaction when George W. Bush was elected? Or no, because... Previous- no, because there was not social media. Right. So, so social media is sort of like the... Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, when George W. Bush was elected, uh, well, the big thing there was that he was unfairly elected. Like, you know, right. they, they were counting the ballots in Florida right, right, and, right. and yeah. Al Gore had won the popular vote. So that it was a it was a constitutional crisis in that right. case. So um, but again, everybody was still watching only a handful of channels. Right. Like it wasn't just three channels. It wasn't like my parents' generation all watching Walter Cron- Cronkite. But people were watching like TV and listening right. to the radio. Yeah. And the big threat at that time was um, was right wing radio was yeah. Rush Limbaugh and that whole world so and it was pretty clear that like those were stupid lunatics and that everyone else was pretty much giving you the the straight story um no now we just have like like complete chaos uh (laughs) in terms of the messaging yeah do you think it's possible to put that genie back in the bottle no i mean do you i i mean no i don't but (laughs) i mean fair enough that wasn't Oh, I was, but I mean, I would love for you. No, I know. I mean, I'm asking you sincerely. Like, I I, I don't, I don't think that it's possible. But I wonder if it's possible to sort of create guardrails because the way social media is designed from a from an AI perspective, again, it's designed to manipulate sort of like the dopamine rush that we get every time we feel, you know, vindicated or every time we bat someone down online. And so I think it's very not impossible, but it's very difficult to go toe-to-toe with that, to be dis- self-disciplined enough, right? Yeah. Especially for Gen Z. I mean, we've talk- we're talking about millennials, but Gen Z is going to have a very interesting problem because they've never grown up with analog. Right. You know, I right. grew up with dial-up, so I-, I still remember a world of analog. You remember those, those screaming sounds of yes. the, the modem? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it, like, failing to work. Um, right. But, but... Gen Z, on the other hand, has never known this world. And so just the way their cognition operates must be so fascinating, you know, having been informed by this completely digitized world. So I don't, I think it'll be um, important to encourage more people from your generation, actually, and from my generation who have grown up in an analog world, at least on some level, to teach and write about and and encourage younger generations to be self-disciplined enough to pull back from social media, to, you know, go out walking in nature. Um, And I don't know. I don't know how hard that will be, but I think that that will be necessary. I think that if we attach some kind of status to that, it it might work. Like, I'm actually just, this is the first time I'm thinking about this. I'm listening to you talk and I'm thinking like, okay, maybe we could, maybe there's some movement that might emerge where like, if you were somebody who was not on any social media at all, like yeah. that would make you cool. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. if it could be hacked that way, that'd be great. It's hard. <laughs> there was an app for it. Right. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> right. it's, it's hard because it, it already interfaces somehow with, with social media. Yeah. You know? And by definition, you wouldn't be able to let people know right. that that's what you were doing. <laughs> right. So, yeah, I, I actually am more optimistic about Gen Z though. They okay. seem to be, they, they seem to be, pushing back against some of the the speech patrolling okay. and the purity policing that you see m- among slightly older people. In my, okay. in my experience, you know, I have had sort of limited experience teaching high school age people and mm-hmm. I found them much, much, much more open to discussion, kind of oh, free ranging um, general discussion than like certain graduate students I've had, okay. for instance. That's, but that's encouraging. Who knows? It may have been a, you know, <laughs> an, an, an anomaly, but uh yeah, uh, 
I, I don't think it's sustainable what we're in now. I mean, we are in, you know, the cancel culture thing. It, it sounds hyperbolic to talk yeah. about it, but frankly, every if everyone's just going to cancel everybody, and then yeah. maybe we'll have a reset. Yeah, I mean, maybe it maybe it will inevitably come to that breaking point where it just is is actually unsustainable. Yeah. Otherwise, there's going to be literally one single person. The most boring person <laughs> in the world. That has officially canceled everyone. The, per- the only person who hasn't gotten canceled is like the person who never said anything interesting or, yeah. or, or anything yeah. at all. Yeah. It's interesting you say that because I was having a conversation because like this podcast, we you know, I talk about a whole bunch of things. I talk with a lot of artists also. Like I'm very much interested in art and, and, the, and the, the place that art can have in the larger you know cultural zeitgeist and a lot of the problems that we're talking about and i think that art has been sort of talking about art has been um a little bit drowned out by the talking about politics constantly you know so i was speaking to an artist recently and we were talking about imposter syndrome and she said imposter syndrome is just proof that you have taste (laughs) oh i thought it was proof that you're not an imposter well Everyone has imposter syndrome, yes. or at least every artist has imposter syndrome, and you know, um, it's. It, it, I think it's related to what you just said. It's. 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 But I think I thought it was interesting how she put it because, it's like, of course you're gonna think that the first things that you put out suck because precisely because you have taste, right? And precisely because you're trying to pursue the best of the best. Of and the best. you have taste, meaning you're you are being influenced by people who are master have mastered what they're doing right right and so your critical eye in this case is a good one you just need to chill out and not let it like completely paralyze you that's right and that's really hard you have to learn how to hold your nose i think that's a huge thing like yes and it and it um dawns on me that that's actually related to cancel culture sort of the opposite of cancel culture right because cancel culture is the represents the on, just as a metaphor, it represents the not chilling out. <laughs> part. Right. It represents the part where you say that something is so not good enough and so like you know malevolent that it just has to be um, thrown out, or else it will totally threaten your sense of existence. Right. Right. Well, it it eliminates any margin for error. Right. Exactly. That's what it does. And you have to, I mean, that's the thing about being a creative person. I'm sure yeah. that you know this and you've talked about this a lot. Like, you, it's never going to be right. Right. Like, it just, by definition, art is imperfect. Yeah. Anything, it's like, you know, anything that is true is complicated. Right. And anything that is, I guess, truly a creative act mm-hmm. is flawed. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's why I sort of wanted you to watch Revolutionary Road. So I, I asked Megan to watch <laughs> I love it. I, I was like, I wish I had a movie assignment every time I talked to so someone. So I asked, I asked you to, to re-watch Revolutionary Road. I had seen it for the first time last week. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because Kate Winslet, her character says something that would be anathema in certain circles but that really spoke to me actually on a somewhat spiritual level she looked at leonardo dicaprio's character and she said you're the most wonderful thing in the world you're a man yes and i i felt like that was so poignant and so much representative of what's lacking in the conversation about the flaws of both men and women wow that's so you went from that from that statement to what's lacking about men and women so meaning like by say more about that like this ability to like yes i'm going to criticize society and yes i'm going to criticize the things that both men and women do but underlying that i'm going to have a profound admiration for the beauty of men and women and i'm going to think that men and women are the most wonderful things in the world right and also what's interesting about that statement is we've heard it a million times from male characters saying it to a woman, yes. meaning her beauty. Yes. You are God's greatest creation right, 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 kind right. of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, but it would be about her physical beauty. Right, exactly. And she's talking about just his whole sort of yeah. essence. And Although, she, And she goes on to tell him things like, you need to take pride in what you do and your work. And it's right, and right. Of course, it's inc- an incredibly tragic movie, but... <laughs> yeah, you know. but, you know, so it's so right. And the movie takes place in 1955. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
wow so you want to talk about it more i don't <laughs> yeah, i know I, I mean i it's so I, well done it is so it well is, done i think it is related to to a lot of the things that we're trying to figure out here with regards to the problem with everything yeah um well I, I, as i said to you before start before i press play actually i think that there's there is political commentary by, by definition, by implication in the film, because it is a commentary on the the hyper-bourgeois society, the hyper-materialist, consumerist, vapid society right. that is the 1950s in, I guess, white suburban America. Um, but also simultaneously, that's not actually what the movie is about. Meaning, it's what it's about, but it's not. Right. It's about also something deeper than that. And it's the 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 personal is primary the political is secondary whereas in our conversations today it's the reverse oh i mean if if people were gonna watch that movie (laughs) i think they they would would they would just be like this is so white like and and on every level i don't even think they could get past the first five minutes well, a lot of people, not everybody, but I a certain think, contingent of people. I think that's actually people. more of a generational thing, unfortunately, to your point. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it did strike me. It's funny. I mean, I probably saw the movie when it came out, and I can't remember when it came out. It's been like easily been years, fifteen yeah. years. Yeah, I mean, even you know, our our sensibilities are so now shaped by all these conversations because I remember I, I started watching the movie I was like god this is the whitest movie and <laughs> yeah, it's not like there's any lack of white stuff yeah. all over the place but like this is really like every single I don't think there was like a single person of color in no. any scene I don't think so. you know that that amazing um, shot in Grand Central Station when all the men are coming yeah. off the train and they all have the same like fedora hat yeah and it's just such a beautifully shot movie yeah um but, you know, I guess, so for listeners who, who aren't familiar with it, it's just, it's about a young couple who um, meet in New York City in the 19, in the early 50s, and she's wants to be an actress, played by Kate Winslet, and Leo DiCaprio plays this guy who's just kind of doesn't really know what he wants to do, and he has kind of romantic ideas about Paris, where he'd mm-hmm. served in the, in the army or something, and... Uh, you know, they they fall in love, they get married, they get pregnant, and they do what you're supposed to do, which is move to the suburbs. Mm-hmm. And uh, then they, you know, so they move to this bedroom community, very, sort of, you know, kind of beautiful, but incredibly boring and vanilla. <laughs> and they have two kids, and then um, they somehow, they're so sort of miserable, uh, not necessarily with each other, but just, you know, in their lives that they get, they hatch this plan that they're going to move to Paris mm-hmm. and they spend about a week or so. It's just a week, actually. Yeah. Is it actually just a I week? I think so. Maybe two weeks, um, you know, sort of fantasizing about Paris and, you know, they buy, they buy uh, tickets to go over on the, on the boat. They have to take a boat to go yeah. there and, um, uh, and uh, he's going to quit his job. And she ends up getting pregnant mm-hmm. and it's all their plans are thwarted. Uh, and, um, you know, all, all through this, I just I kept saying to myself, why don't they just move to the city? <laughs> right. Like it's, it's just that's book. the problem with the movie. It's like <laughs> move to the yeah. city. It's like, how hard is this? Well, I think that I think I mean, I'm this is pure conjecture at this point, but I think if I would guess that characters would say that like all of it is corrupted, like all of it, meaning New York city or the suburbs is corrupted by this like hyper consumerist society. I mean, he works in this. Right. right? I know. So but, in a, but they were happier when they lived there. Like the, see I, this, this is where it like sort of hit me personally because I grew up in the suburbs in a community like that with absolutely most miserable parents yeah. who should never, I mean, who shouldn't have had kids. Like how far back do you want to go? <laughs> I mean, they did their best. This is like, you know, but yeah. they, they just never ever should have been in the circumstances that they were in. They should never have like, had a family in this particular way they certainly should never have lived in the suburbs okay. and they did it because they thought that's what you were supposed to do mm-hmm. and so um it's it really yeah i think the movie had a, a profound effect on me even back when i saw it the first time because of that and i just okay. wanted to scream like just m- buy a place on the upper west side like that's yeah. gonna be a great investment or even you know not not in the 50 you know it's i just can't imagine that it would have been See, of course, I'm just thinking in terms of real estate. I know what you're saying. I just, I will just quickly say that I don't know. I, I think that in 1955, it was probably still pretty affordable to live in okay. Manhattan, and it wasn't dangerous or anything. Mm. Um, and so, but I know what you're saying. Sort of on a larger existential level, yeah, Paris represented this yeah. whole other thing. 
Um, yeah. And and by it's, the way, it's interesting how Paris, not to go on a tangent, but Paris has, for various, in the minds of various people, represented like this like utopian escape room. Oh, sure. James Baldwin. Yeah, and, and a, lot, and, of, a yeah. lot of black authors yes. in particular have thought about Paris, including Coates, who like went to Paris right. for like a split second. So it's yes. interesting how that looms large in the in the in the mind. But I didn't of- see these characters as having any kind of like um, consciousness around that, <laughs> yeah. or like around even the arts or anything. Like yeah. it was more that they just wanted to be special. They talk a lot about it's, being special. It's crazy though. Like you're right that they didn't have like explicit consciousness around the arts, but there was, I think, a underlying red thread that like if they would have been courageous enough and brave enough to go for it, that that might have been cultivated. Yes. More, but they were so conditioned by the society around them and so afraid. I think yes. The, I think that fear was sort of like a, a major theme of that film, and of course the guy who was in the mental health asylum yes it's it there because he refuses to lie right well he <laughs> plays a pivotal role yes it's always the crazy person or yeah. the yeah he's like the uh the voice of he's like the what, what do you call that in literature he's like the, I don't know, the voice of reason well he's like the, the he's he is the voice of their um of, of their actual consciousness, consciousness. Yeah, 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 yeah right or of their subconscious, whatever. So, yeah. But I guess, um, I mean, getting to your initial thoughts about this, yeah, in terms of men and women, I thought it was, it did a really nice job of showing about how, you know, just showing how how stultifying life is for everybody. Yeah. If you're male or female or what. Because, yeah. you know, she had to go through these pregnancies and I don't know if we want to give away the end, but we there was a, won't give it you know, away. really yeah, yeah. tragic, there was, there's a really tragic situation around her lack of agency around her own reproduction yeah um but we also see how profoundly he's affected by this yeah and and he is just as trapped as she is in a lot of ways yeah um and i think like a lot of the conversation around feminism now assumes that men white men anyway have always like had a had a great hand to play and have you know sort of sailed through yeah. Western civilization uh, in a way that that's is not always true. Yeah, and I think that this speaks to what I think is the problem with everything. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> Which is, if I could sum it up, this incredible vapidness, like that's underlying a lot of the ideas that are that are being circulating right now on Twitter, especially about identity. It's not that I find them. It's not that I find these. Uh, ideas problematic as much as I find them boring. I find them lazy. See, you you say vapid and I say lazy. Yeah. 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 And I also saw A Hidden Life last night, which is a whole other story for another time. Uh, Terrence Malick happens to be my favorite. um, What's the film? A Hidden Life. Tree of Life? No. Hidden Life? I don't know what that is. director. Yeah, Terrence. I love Terrence Malick. How how did that... Me too. Days of Heaven... So I've All actually time only best. seen Tree of Life and A Hidden Life. Oh, so he'll be your but super favorite director. I'm a little director. afraid to see some of his other pieces just because I have this like very idealized, pedestalized version of him. But, his, <laughs> but those early movies are better. Than, really? Oh, for sure. Tree of Life has been bonkers. Tree of Life, Tree of Life is like one in my top five. Oh my God. What's Hidden Life? So A Hidden Life, which came out this month, is about the true story of this guy, Franz, I, f- I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but this Austrian guy who refused to pledge an oath to Hitler. Oh, I, okay, I heard and about, about this, yes. it's about the whole, like, because he's living in an, a very idyllic, you know, part of Austria, and then his whole world is up in it and how it affects him and his wife and his kids. Um, and uh, it's an amazing film. It's almost three hours long. Um, I will probably go see it again in theaters. That's how good it was. Um, people are saying like Terrence Malick is back with this with this new tour de France. Oh, good. So, so um, but I say all that to say that this speaks to my obsession with like art and you know cinema and literature, and I think that a lot of the political conversations that are being had, for example, on Twitter and on and in publications, frankly, of note. Um, they don't capture the complexity that the art does. And if you're only having the political conversation, it would never dawn on you to make such statement that Kate Winslet's character made to Leonardo DiCaprio's character. Whenever, right. You would never begin to see the man. You would only see the political label. 
that you right. would ascribe to him. Right. Um, and that's the vapidness, and that's the boringness, and that's the laziness. And it's you know? and it's it's ultimately just so one or two dimensional. Mm-hmm. You know, the thing with this book is, I you know I have always approached my writing as not I, I'm not a, a polemicist. Even when I was an opinion columnist at the Los Angeles Times for more than a decade, I really yeah. saw my columns as an invitation to invite my readers to think alongside me as I sorted through things. And I also wrote through the lens of my personal experience. And you know, when I started obsessing about all these sort of culture war ideas that's kind of you know around 2014 or so. You know, I thought, I'm going to have to write about this eventually, and how am I going to do it, and how am I going to put this together? And I had so many versions. I mean, it's a really short book, and I probably wrote like four times as much material. It was. It took me so long to write this short book because I just threw out so much and everything was changing. But in the end, it was obvious that the only way to do it was to to put it through a personal lens and talk about my own sort of you know, my own aging process. A lot of it is about aging and being yeah. a Gen Xer and feeling old before your time. And, you know, just the, a, a particular way of, of growing up and, and like the, the personal and the political are completely enmeshed in the book. And, you know, I, I really was trying to do it on the level of art as yeah. well as as politics and that yeah. sounds pretentious but <laughs> but i really truly especially the end i mean it's to me like it's it it really um it's like i have my my literary hat on like mm-hmm. in, in a lot of places in the book especially the end and what has been interesting about the way it's been received is that I don't think anybody yet has engaged with it on any sort of artistic level. Like okay. like that I don't think it has occurred to them yeah. <laughs> that that I'm up to anything other than just like, you know, saying, "Oh, young people get off my lawn and and I don't care about <laughs> yes, you I and I'm going to talk article. about my, you know, like the a lot of criticism has been that it's idiocentric. Like I'm just talking about my own experience and not acknowledging other people's experience." Well, that is sort of true um but it's also like the only way i could have done the book so i i basically had the choice between doing it that way or not doing it (laughs) and you could make a lot of people probably think i should not have done it (laughs) um but i really it's like you know i i think that if you're an author you really should write every book as if it may be the last book you write yeah it's interesting it's definitely like it struck me as part memoir, part political commentary. One of my biggest criticisms is that I wanted to see actually more of the personal. Well, <laughs> oh, more personal. Yeah, see, yeah, I wanted to see. I wanted to to read more of the personal because I think that the personal would have maybe cushioned the political piece. Interesting, because a lot of people say it's too, it's not personal enough. I mean, that's so like you can't you win. No, I do. I mean, it, me. it's um. But this is like me with my like obsession with art speaking. Right. So. Well, I mean, I'm glad to hear that. The thing again, it's like you can't um, you you know, I, I learned this when I was a columnist. Is like if everybody if if everybody's mad about a column, you've yeah, succeeded. Sure. Like you can't. And um, yeah, I I guess um. I mean, there were definitely, there were definitely things there. Look, I took out a lot mm-hmm. and a lot of it, frankly, was stuff that even my publisher and I decided that just wasn't worth dying okay. on that hill. I sure. mean, there were certain issues that I would have loved to get into. And I certainly wrote pages and pages about that. We were like, if, if we go there, that's going to be the only thing that people talk about Fair. in terms of this book. Fair. Um, but yeah, the personal. Well, you know, I have uh, I have I have five other books that are extremely personal. So Fair you enough. can. Uh, I kind of feel like I would have just been retreading. Uh, fair enough. That's, that's <laughs> but I. But that's. I'll take. Totally I, I take your criticism. That's. Uh, I I did I did enjoy the book though, and um, um yeah. So I mean, I think that like, not to beat a dead horse, but I think that you know you you mentioned James Baldwin in this book, and James Baldwin is someone I teach in a lot of like the classes where I teach. Uh, theory of enchantment curriculum um and james baldwin was i think i think james baldwin is someone who's quoted by a lot of people and not actually deeply read yeah because you can hide behind he's become like a human shield (laughs) have you noticed it's like oh i'm gonna be accused of everything i'm just gonna quote james baldwin and then they can't say anything to me yeah so but i feel like our level of conversation about like the relationship between men and women and even the relationship 
um, that we were talking about with regard to Revolutionary Road was the same caliber of discourse that Baldwin was producing in, pa- in like the pages of The New Yorker, certainly, um, and in a lot of his books. And so I think it's ironic that people know Baldwin, the political commentator, but not Baldwin, the artist. Well, because he would have been problematic. I mean, <laughs> I mean yeah. no, I, th- I don't think that that people can walk and chew gum at the same time anymore. But they can. They can, but there's an unwillingness to, and it's disincentivized mm. because it's very hard for that to translate on Twitter. And again, I don't mean to like give Twitter all this power. I've gotten like a lot of emails from especially older people saying like, I read your book and you know, I, I relate to it, but why on earth are you talking about Twitter so much? Like, you oh, know, okay. get away. And it's like, yeah, I, I, I hear you, but yeah. I'm sorry to say that is how ideas are being processed in this yeah. moment. Yeah, I do think that there's a caveat in that I'm on Twitter and I'm able to still generate a following of some sort while being nuanced. And Yeah, how do you do it? What's your secret? <laughs> no, but I don't think I'm the only person no. on Twitter doing that. You know, I think it's also, it's not like, it's not like we don't have autonomy. I think there's a personal choice. That no, we can, I, I you know. know, but like I have... Um, I have just known, you know, I've been publishing essays for 25 years. Mm -hmm. And in the beginning of my career, it was just expected that you were going to write a complicated long piece that tried to take stuff on and, um, and, and approached a subject on a number of different levels. And it would be maybe provocative, um, but thoughtful. And now if you try to do that, it's like, there's, it's a, there's a risk assessment that goes on. Sure editorially and that doesn't have anything to do with social media i mean i it is it is a symptom of social media because because you know an editor is going to say okay this piece like i i get what this author is saying but is this going to be is there is the only way to boil this down in a social media blurb or headline necessarily going to make people misconstrue it Mm -hmm. and weaponize it and if the answer to that is yes there is a reluctance to run the piece at all. And that actually is a huge problem yeah. to me. That really frightens me sure. more than like people grousing about identity politics right. and all this stuff. Like that's t- ephemeral. I think that's going to pass. This is like a genuine in- intellectual crisis. I think. Yeah, that's fair. That's, that's, that's well put. Um, but so you wrote a book called The Problem with Everything. But my, one of my questions to you is what are you excited about? It's we're almost, you know, on 2020. I am I'm actually I'm actually excited about the way people are wanting to talk about this stuff I'm not just saying that I I, you know um, I knew that uh, I I knew this book you know I've I've been as somebody who's like always been pretty well received by critics I've been very spoiled I'm like in the embrace of like elite media and I was in the New Yorker and when I was in my 20s and everything and uh you know, this is the first time I've been shunned by a lot of those places. And I knew it was going to happen. I mean, it was completely expected. And a lot of people, a lot of my peers, you know, people, my professional colleagues said, don't write this book. Like, mm-hmm. it's not worth it. And I was just like, no, I'm telling you, like, it is. Like, yeah. I, I know deep down that it is. And I've always, you know, my career has always been guided by sort of my gut instinct is to say this thing because I think a lot of people feel the same way, but they're just not able to say it. Like that has been the the guiding principle of everything I've written about since I was 24 years old, you know, mm-hmm. and I see no reason to stop now. And so what I'm hopeful about and what I'm really, I'm happy to see is that people are dying to talk about this stuff. Like the majority of people are like you and me, like they want to have, complicated conversations and they want to feel safe to have free ranging conversations. And, and it's really, um, there's a huge gulf between people who are coming up to me at book signings, people who are emailing me. I'm sure you find this in your career and life too. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, there's a huge difference between those people and what like certain spheres of mainstream elite media yeah. seem to be assuming. And it's like the first time in sort of modern media history that the journalists, a lot of them are actually behind the curve. It was always that the uh, professional media people were like on the edge and yeah. like, like you know, sort of you know, knew what was coming and were like ahead of everybody right. in terms of ideas. And now it's the opposite yeah. in a way. Um, yeah. And so 
I don't think it's any accident that podcasts are so popular now because that is really the the closest we can get to having those conversations with drinks over our friends after work. <laughs> like instead yeah. of doing that, we're like listening to other people talk to each other, which is what I spent a lot of time listening to. Um, but I think that that's a pretty good indicator that that people are ravenous for just more nuance in their sure. discussions. So this might be a bit of a redundant question, but uh, what piece of advice would you give to both millennials and Gen Z as someone who does have the benefit of retrospect? Just people in general or people people who are writers? I mean, I talk to my students. All the, I sure. give my students lots of advice. Um, Anyone you'd like. Know how to be. Cohort. Well, you know, I give this advice to everybody. Know how to be alone. Mm. People cannot be alone. That is the biggest yeah. way people mess up their so that's lives. Quite weird yes, to me. well, but that's why you're doing well. That's <laughs> why you do well because I, I really I think the the two biggest ways people mess up their lives is that they don't have enough imagination about mm -hmm. what their life could be, which we saw in Revolutionary right. Road, classic example. These people just couldn't quite imagine doing it a different way. Yeah. They didn't have the courage, but they but before the the you know not, not only did they not have the courage, more importantly, they didn't have the imagination. Right. Number two, people cannot be alone. So it used to be more you would see like people would just kind of marry anybody because they couldn't be alone. Like right. it would manifest sort of socially in terms mm -hmm. of, you know, relationship wise, that kind of thing. But now I think people can't be alone with their thoughts. Yeah. So, you know, in order to actually know what you think, you have to sit with yourself and and really like not uh, get the go for the dopamine hit right, right away. And so, you know, what I see a lot in terms of the the discourse is people not they don't even have bad intent. They're not trying to like be mean or mm -hmm. cancel, you know, they're they're but they're they're wanting they're feeling alone and they want some kind of soothing. Like yeah. like, you know, I think that you know, I say to people like before you go to say something online, like ask yourself if you really feel a moral obligation to say this thing or are you just self-soothing? Yeah. Yeah, it's like self-medicating. Well, that was awesome. The book is The Problem with Everything by Megan Dahm. Thank you so much for joining the Theory of Enchantment podcast. Thank you, Chloe. Today's quote comes from the poet Paul Lawrence Dunbar who wrote, I know why the caged bird sings, ah, me, when his wing is bruised and his bosom sore, when he beat his bars and would be free. It is not a carol of joy or glee, but a prayer that he sends from his heart's deep core, but a plea that upward to heaven he flings. I know why the caged bird sings. That makes for another episode of the Theory of Enchantment podcast. As always, I'm your host, Chloe Valdery. Have a great week.